Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is Dr. Julia Mossbridge. She is the research director of Mossbridge Institute. She is also a visiting scholar in the psychology department at Northwestern University, a fellow at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the science director at Focus at Will Labs, and an associated professor in integral and transpersonal psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Now, that's a mouthful, and that's not even a smidge of what her resume actually is. <laughs> but today we talk about how time is perceived by unconscious and conscious processes and oh so much more. Stay tuned. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. Oh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years, and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this, intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Dr. Julia Mossbridge, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Kristen. Absolutely. Now I hear you're out in nature doing doing this interview, correct? (laughs) Yeah, I'm out in nature. I love to... I love to work outside. It's my favorite workspace. Absolutely. I do too. I do too. Uh, Sometimes I'm running, I'm pausing things, pausing the recording and running for cover in my house if uh, the neighbors decide to turn on the power mower. But other than that, it works great. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we'll see. I think it's, I live in a pretty quiet place, but things can happen. Tractors, mostly (laughs) tractors. Exactly. Well, Will Henshaw uh, referred you to us with his, uh, he was, he's so lovely. I, the man was made for radio. Obviously he has his, you know, his longstanding career as a um, British pop star. So he has the chops uh, vocally for that. But uh, I told him, oh my gosh, you need to host your own show. Your voice is even just saying hello on the phone. He sounds like he should, he should be recorded. Yeah, he's got a great voice. <laughs> so how do the two of you um, know each other and work together? So I'm the science director. I, I have multiple gigs in, in life. Um, as a scientist, I left um, academia so that I could go off and explore lots of different things that aren't really allowed in academia. And one of the things I wanted to explore was um, the influence of, of music on mood, especially things that are sort of rather controversial, like can music or, or soundscapes influence your ability to track information in time such that you might get information from the future? Those kind of things. So pretty controversial. Um, and Will, I was really impressed with Focus at Will 
because I started listening and I realized it absolutely supported my my ability to focus. At least it worked for me. And I wondered if it was placebo or not. Mm-hmm. And I sent Will as the CEO an email saying, hey, I can't figure out if this is placebo or not, but I'm super fascinated by it. And he said, we're looking for a science director. Do you want to do some experiments and try to figure that out? And I was like, <laughs> yes. So isn't it interesting how those things, you know, can spawn? I mean, we just started an organization called Digital Tech Initiative, which I did talk to Will about. It's all about... um a digital media addiction and uh, you know it's it's uh, impact on our mental health and all of us have jobs we all do many different things we have a geneticist and psychologists and comedians and a media person me i mean it's it's extremely varied and we just decided one day you know we're not doing this for the money it's we all have jobs we just this is fascinating to us and just one day i said hey let's all do this and everybody said okay where do we sign <laughs> Fun. So it, it's it's interesting how those things can you know can come together like what you're doing with Will and the other projects you're on. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think when when people when when you clear off the sludge of whatever society is telling you is the thing that you should be doing, <laughs> um, uh, great things happen, right? Because Absolutely. you get in touch with what's inside of you and who you are and how to. Be that in the world so absolutely it makes what you do so much richer um and i mean richer in terms of your experience your how you feel about yourself and your life and your contribution to the world it can also be financially rewarding but um i think for many of us that figure this piece out that's certainly not the driving factor yeah 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 yes i agree all about having um, a richer experience of life. So tell our listeners a little bit about your background. Well, let me just back up. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's about having a richer experience of life. Um, I mean, I think that's pleasurable to have a richer experience of life. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that's a goal um, that really, I don't know. I feel like that feels good. But I feel like what's really powerful is not that, ex- I mean, that experience is great. But I feel like the core experience for me is um, being authentically related to who I am in the world. Mm-hmm. Like that, regardless of whether my experience of life is rich or poor or whatever, just having the, the core experience of being able to be who I am in the world, that is, um, that is it for me. That, like that's the best. So yeah, um, I, I, would, I would take what you just said and that would fit my definition of a richer experience in the world. I guess oh, that's how you look at the, the definition of it. Yeah, I, I, I look at it like, like that. Nothing related to good or bad. Just I am more plugged in, connected, in tune with myself and who I am. And that allows me to also see that in others, uh, which for me is amazing, even in the times that aren't so pleasant. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or impoverished. Experience. Yes. Yeah, impoverished experience of lifetimes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because exactly, we're all human. I just had this talk with a friend of mine last night. Uh, she's a high powered executive for a healthcare company. And she likes the fact that she can just come in and do 40 hours and go home as opposed to the job she had before where it was just this constant emotional roller coaster, no boundaries, no set hours, that kind of thing. And um, we were talking about, 
you know, she said, well, you interview all these people, these amazing people that know this person and that person and a hundred letters after their name. And I said, and you know, what's great about it? All of us struggle. All, all of us. I don't care how, I don't care if, you know, Dr. Mark Goldston just got a, you know, an award from Mehmet Oz and somebody else wrote a bestseller and somebody else can barely make their rent. It doesn't matter. We all have the same human condition uh, that includes sometimes really struggling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And sometimes really, yeah. I mean, all of it. Yeah. I agree. So, yeah. But yeah, what do you want to know about my background? I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I just want to give some context um, to our listeners. It's not to, you know, show them, you know, a long list of your biography, more just how, why you went into the fields of study you do, why you do the work that you do, uh, what, what about sure. that is, um, is wonderful, you know, for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, when I was a kid, I, I, I had this coloring book called the Human Brain Coloring Book. Mm. and uh, I used it to, to teach myself basic neuroanatomy. And then um, I was also, so I, I really loved that book. Like that, I sort of treasured it by my bed, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I also had, um, like when I was nine or so, I fell in love with Lewis Carroll's Symbolic Game of Logic, which is a book about logical thinking and logic games, and it's like delicious candy. And... Um, and those two books, sort of the life of the mind and the life of the brain, um, were my, my treasure troves. And um, I don't know why that's true. I guess I'm just built that way. But, um, but that led me towards thinking I wanted to go into neuroscience. And so I went to fancy school and then graduated in with highest honors and I was on the, I was on the big, you know, academic train, the academic success train. Like you just always do the top level best and you always go to the most difficult competitive program and you always try to do the hardest thing because, because you're always going to win. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that, I mean, I didn't realize that's what I was thinking, but that's what I was thinking. And um, so I went to graduate school at the most competitive neuroscience program in the country at UC San Francisco at the time. And, um, and a couple of years into the program, I was depressed and uh, pretty unhappy with about everything. And, and had the experience of feeling like, God, I got into this because I wanted to understand the mind. But I had this amazing phone conversation with my stepmom, who's a psychoanalyst. And she said, okay, I don't understand exactly what, what you're doing in your graduate program. So can you help me understand? And I said, sure, I'm super excited right now. I'm <laughs> in a lab where I'm, you know, looking at uh, receptors on, the, on, on neurons in the brain and trying to understand how they're gated by voltage and, and how, how you know, voltage-gated receptors operate to uh, impact, like, learning in the cell, right? So I'm trying to explain it to her. And she's like, oh, that's really interesting. What happens if you know the answer to that and I go oh, okay yeah so if if you know the answer to that you could help people maybe learn better you could um you could understand like um how the brain is processing information how it's storing information how it's improving and in knowledge over time and she goes great what if you knew that what would you know 
And I said, oh, well, if you knew that, um, let's say you knew, and then she just says, look, I'm going to cut to the chase. What if you knew where every molecule <laughs> in the brain was at every moment of time, and you understood every process that happened in the brain and every neuron and how it spoke to every other neuron? What if you knew that? And I remember this so well. I sank to the floor. I was on a landline because there were no cell phones then. It was like 1993. I sank to the floor and sat and squatted. And I was just, she had gotten to the core of my depression that I didn't know was the core of my depression, mm. which is that I realized if I knew all of those things about the brain, it wouldn't tell me what I wanted to know about the mind. It would just tell me where all those particles were. But it would tell me where all those what all those mechanisms were doing. But it wouldn't tell me what I wanted to know about the mind because I'm not interested, for for better or worse, I'm not that interested in helping cure diseases in the brain or or dealing with learning disabilities. All of these things, which I know are important, having a son who has a learning disability. Um, but I, for whatever reason, I'm not motivated in that direction. And what I'm motivated in the, in the direction of is trying to understand the human, what the human mind can do and how to shift the human mind, regardless of what's going on in the brain, almost despite of what's going on in the brain. And, and that conversation is what made me leave my graduate program after getting my master's degree instead of continuing on to the PhD. And I decided I would never do science again because I was distraught. Um, I just thought, shit, I mean, <laughs> the, the whole thing I was going for, I didn't even think it through. Like, I was just like, climb to the top of the academic ladder. Let's go, go, go. And mm -hmm. she could figure it out in five minutes. And she led me to the awareness that I was barking up the wrong tree. And so for five years, I did everything but do science. And then I got, I got entranced with, uh, science again by taking a class at the aquarium about marine mammal communications communication and my teacher had some data to analyze and uh i was like oh my god i hope she picks up me to analyze the data i'm so excited and then like no one else in the class was even hearing her or listen or listening or interested and i was like oh okay so i guess this is just my thing and um so i analyzed the data and i found something really interesting and then i was hooked and then i thought oh okay, right. I really like science. I really have to do science. I have to finish my PhD, but it has to be on my own terms and it has to be in an area that I'm interested in. So I went into a program at Northwestern about um, psychoacoustics, the psychology of sound perception. And here's something that people do with their minds. That is, it's, the field does not have to relate it to the brain. It's just about what is the mind doing when we're listening? What is the mind doing when we're trying to sort out one sound from, for, from another? Um, that's super interesting to me. So I, was, I just was carried into another direction. And then um, from then on, it was all about time. How does the brain, uh, sorry, how does the mind, and then of course the brain, but I see that as secondary, deal with time, uh, events in time, predicting the future, um, anticipating the future, and uh, dealing with the flow of events in the stream of consciousness. So that's, that's where I went with it. Mm. So now I say that my, when people ask me what I do, I, I say, look, I, my, my calling, I'm really interested in the concept of a calling, but my calling is to teach and learn about love and time. So that is, that is my work. I do research and I teach about love and time. 
And uh, so that's what ties all my work together. Love and time are huge enough that they can encompass all the things I'm interested in, I guess, because I'm interested in a lot of things. So I'm like, I better have a broad description of what I do. That's a vast <laughs> landscape, exactly. Yeah. Love and time. I don't know what doesn't get included in that. But anyway, I think I got it covered. <laughs> exactly. I know I love it when people say, oh, you do a show about mental health. And the first thing that they think of is mental illness. And I have mm -hmm. to say, no, that, that's included for sure, but the show is about mental health. Oh, well, then I can't come on and talk about such and such. Well, yeah, I mean, probably uh, coming on and talking about building a car and all of the components of a car and that's all it's about wouldn't necessarily fit on a mental health show, but you do actually uh, have to have mental health um, in order to build a car. So it can't, it can't fit anywhere. So I don't see me, I don't see where I put myself in any kind of a box. I think, um, you know, it can fit anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, love and time. Um, that, that, that is vast, just like the topic of mental health. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It helps cover yourself because you figure, okay, I don't want to change careers again. So for the rest of my life, <laughs> Let's just go big. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, when you talk about, I mean, I don't know if you heard the show that I did with Will. Did you get a chance to listen to that? No, not yet. He, has he, I don't know if he sent me a link. So yeah, I want to hear it. Okay. He, he talked about um, the, his near death experience and uh, he wasn't planning on talking about that, but he was fine to talk about it. But um, I had told him that I had had a, an experience like that also. Uh, I just wasn't near death. And the biggest piece that I got out of my experience was about, I mean, it certainly was about love, but it was also about time. And mm -hmm. that in that experience, I was shown that time does not exist the way that it does for us here. And that was the most, it made me be so less stressed. Yes in my waking life about when things happen, yes, all that. It was, it was really wonderful. And actually I could go back and forth in the time yeah. of a human being to change things um, in that realm than you can obviously as a human being, or at least that we think we can. It was really fascinating. Yeah. 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 So that's same. I got the same kind of insight from um, a same kind of, uh, non near death experience, near death experience. And um, that's probably why I've been obsessed with doing these time experiments. But right now I'm doing this experiment related to that um, using a double slit optical system. You know, the double slit, the famous physics double slit experiment. No, because I'm so not a scientist. <laughs> okay. All right. So, <laughs> wait, so wait, before I go into this experiment, let me explain why I'm telling you this so that you okay. can hold to like a thread of reality here because <laughs> okay. I, I realize sometimes I launch into this stuff and then it's like wait why is she saying that okay so this is why I'm saying this um I too have this insight that um it's almost like there's a it's almost an exception to have this linear time thing this experience of linear time that humans have is like an exception to the to the way physical reality actually works mm -hmm. and so um there's a place in, so, so if you take that idea and you say, look, there's a place in, in physical reality that's not human observed, um, 
but where all the events in time exist, like you would put them in a bowl, like imagine different color marbles in a bowl. Those are all the events in time that are going to happen or have happened or whatever. It doesn't matter. They're all jumbled up in a bowl. And what time does in a human, human experience of time does is it takes them out one by one and puts them in an order. But they don't exist in an order. You know, they're naturally just in that bowl. And um, so I was trying to find a way to sort of prove that or test that theory, mostly test it, right? Because if it's wrong, I want to know. So, um, so here's, here's the experiment. Here's, I'm just obsessing over this experiment because it's so <laughs> cool. Because I'm just getting data from it and the data are so cool. Anyway, so the, here's, here's the thing, double slit optical system. So that's, a, that's a, what it is, is uh, one, of the, one of the most, um, I guess Feynman called it the essential mystery of quantum mechanics, uh, Richard Feynman. But it, it's basically an, mostly an empty tube. And on one end of the tube, you've got uh, a light source, like a, a, a low, um, low wattage light bulb. And on the other end of the tube, you've got a detector, like a photomultiplier, but we're just going to call it a detector. And in the middle, you have two slits, which means you have a piece of like, let's say cardboard, and you have two like hair width, just lines in it that the light can go through. The light can only go through those two slits, right? It's either going to bounce off the cardboard around the slits or it's going to go through one of the slits. That's the, that's the, that's the intuitive feeling, right? Does that make sense so far? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> the detector, let's imagine that the light goes through the top slit. Let's say they're horizontal slit. Let's say that the light goes through the top slit. The detector at the end of the tube should show, I mean, based on our normal intuitions, the detector should show a bunch of light, you know, photons, let's say, photons should be detected, light particles, let's say, should be detected at the top part of the detector because it's going through the top part of the slit, the top slit, right? Does that make sense? Like if you pour water through something that has two slits and you only pour it through one slit, the water should be seen on the opposite side of the slit. Right. Right? Okay, so now if it goes through the bottom slit, you should get detection at the bottom slit, right? Yep. Okay, good. So this is, I'm just going through like that. <laughs> I that's need like, it explained that way. So thank you. Yes. Okay, good. Yeah, I just wanna, that's the normal assumption. Here's what is the essential mystery of quantum mechanics, according to Feynman. There's two parts to this mystery. One part is that if you take one, okay, first of all, that's not what happens. If you just shine a light, doesn't matter how many photons, if you shine a light through the slit, you see what's called an interference pattern. So you see it, it's as if it's going through both slits and it's interfering with itself. Well, that sort of makes sense, right? If you dump a lot of water through two holes, the waves that come out on the other side will be affected by the waves from each of the, 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 the two, the waves from the two slits or the two holes will affect each other, right? right? Okay, so that makes sense. Except when you turn down the, the light so low that only one photon at a time is coming out, it still shows the interference pattern. Well, this is like having one droplet of water that goes through one slit interfering with what? There's no other droplet of water, mm. right? There's no other droplet of water to affect the wave. So what's it interfering with? Well, the standard interpretation is it's interfering with itself. It actually goes through both slits. So mm. it's mysteriously able to go through both slits. 
Okay, so that's one of the mysteries. And that's the mystery that I'm working with. The other mystery is that actually, whether it goes through both slits or not depends on where you look. So if you look at one of the slits, it doesn't go through both slits anymore. But if you don't look at the slits, it does go through both slits. So meaning it human it, observation is impacting right. where this thing is detected. Right, exactly. If you have one eye open, one eye closed, if you are positioned in a certain way, even though technically um, it is going through both slits because you could measure the wetness and the whatever that it went through, but your observation of it would be that it didn't. No, not even technically. That's the thing. That's the mystery. Okay. It literally is changing its behavior based on how you're observing it. Interesting. Okay. Now everything, you... Yeah. Everything about it looks, looks different. And there's no way you can say it's the same phenomenon if you're looking in one place versus the other. Wow. So, yeah, that's part of the mystery, right? How does human observation influence what is actually occurring at a physical level? So, yeah, so that's, so that's interesting. So part of what I think is going on is that when you observe something, you bring it into time, you bring it out of that bowl of jumbled up events, and you bring it into linear time. So it's like it's in two worlds. One world is where everything's jumbled up and there is no time. And another world is human experience of linear time, where once you observe something, now it's in that it's very difficult to get it out of that linear time. Like I say, like this morning I woke up and nothing's going to change that. I observed it. That happened. Hmm. Right. Right. But, but in this other world, in this quantum world, that's still waking up is still in the bowl, just like everything else is still in the bowl, you know, all jumbled up. So to test that, I have a random number generator. Okay. This gets tricky, especially over audio. So just, I'm going to ask you to imagine the tube and imagine there's a the random on off button that's connected to the tube. And when I say random on off button, what I mean is a random number generator, randomly choosing numbers that decide whether this thing is going to go on for a long time or a short time. Okay. So it'll go on for like a minute or it'll go on for 10 minutes, let's say. But at the beginning, you don't know. The random number doesn't decide how long it's going to go on until already a minute has passed. So it goes like this. You turn it on. No one in the planet knows. No one on the planet knows how long this thing is going to be on. But after a minute, the random number generator decides whether it turns off or whether it continues for nine more minutes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, it doesn't make sense why I would do this, but the reason I'm going to do this is because or the reason I'm doing this is because if the number of future photons that will eventually come out of that lamp impact what's happening in that first minute, because things in the bowl can impact other things in the bowl even when they're not um, in linear time, then you should see a difference in the interference patterns or the detections of the photons in the first minute, depending on whether this thing is going to go on for nine more minutes or stop. So it's like a way to bridge the two worlds of linear time right. and nonlinear time. Did that make sense? 
It does actually. I'm shocked that it does, or at least my observation is that it makes sense. <laughs> yeah, and so the data are supporting this, and I, I am just running the experiment over and over again because I can't believe it, and um, and finding out what the parameters are and stuff. But anyway, there's something going on um, about those two worlds, and uh, and and how time is working. And so anyway, that's that's the kind of thing that I'm. One of the things that I'm like grooving along with now. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's fascinating about things like this is that it, it, to me, it helps people that are willing to listen uh, and that want to understand this, maybe get closer to seeing how much power we actually have to affect our lives, to affect the outcome of our life, to experience to affect the experience of our life. Um, that speaks loudly for me. A lot of people think they're behave that they're stuck or think that they're stuck and they're in this box. Um, and things like this sort of blow that out of the water. Yeah. Well, and as you, as you intuited, um, getting an understanding that linear time isn't really the default. It's not really like the norm or the way things actually sort of work in the larger scheme of things. It's very relaxing because even without control, I mean, so like people say how much control we have or how much power we have, mm -hmm. even if we don't have any power, even if everything's already predetermined, it also doesn't matter so much because this concept of time, it's uh, the thing the power and control these I, these wishes we have as humans for power and control come because we can't we think we can't anticipate the future and we have to be prepared for it and we're afraid right but if if linear time doesn't isn't really representative of what's going on and all the events that will happen are piled up into some kind of bowl um I find it relaxing because you don't need to have power or control. Exactly. It's not exactly. on your friggin' shoulders. It's That's not right. up to you. So um, I find that very relaxing. And so when people say, oh, my God, does that mean there's no free will? And I'm like, but why do you, why do you care about free will? <laughs> why does that matter to you? Because you're afraid. And you think if you just do the right thing, you'll figure out things better than the universe. Wait, what are the chances that you right now know better than the universe how to do anything <laughs> yeah i know i say that i say that to myself when i um when i'm obsessing about something and i'm literally creating a path of this is how this is going to work this is the outcome uh to this particular situation is going to play out like this to this eventual outcome or that eventual outcome and right. I can go down that rabbit hole. And a lot of that is from past trauma and you know, having to figure out those things as a little kid and whatever. But um, as an adult, I, I'll go, okay, you know what? It is, the how is totally none of your business. That's like completely up to the universe. Uh, stop, yeah. stop creating. You're, I'm actually creating that because that's all I choose to observe. Right. All of Maybe. that just... Maybe. I mean, again, I feel like there's a lot of new age stuff that says like, you're going to create your reality and all your thoughts are going to become right. this or that. And um, I don't believe in all that stuff. I don't either. And I also think it's damaging. I think it's yes. largely puritanical. 
I think it's like this idea of like, oh, you better do the right, you better have the right thoughts. Not only should you like live this wonderful life, but your thoughts better be like pristine. Oh my God, what, what a way to paralyze humanity. Oh, I know there's, there's one group out there that they have some interesting stuff. It does, uh, it can be helpful, but they're, you know, don't go to a hospital, don't be around sick people because then you're going to sort of get infected with sick people cooties and that will be your experience. Yep. of. And I'm like thinking that is what a horrible thing to tell people. <laughs> well, also it's, it's, it's damaging also because it, it makes you think that you have like, that there's that much control. I mean, look, we just don't have a control over things. I mean, like we just don't have control over things and there's no evidence that we do. I mean, I could barely control my own body. I mean, you know, tell me, tell me if you can figure out how to make your cuticles grow. I can't. Uh, I am, I'm not in charge of that. I'm also not in charge of breathing when I'm asleep. I'm also not in charge of breathing when I'm awake. I mean, there's literally nothing I can think of that I have control over. Even mm-hmm. in my own body, outside my own body, it's like a thousand times more difficult to think about how we have control. But to me, that's relaxing rather than terrifying. And so, yeah, I think any of these traditions that are around telling new traditions or old traditions that are saying, here's the secret to, to controlling your reality. Um, I think they're harmful. Yeah, I think that they can be. I think sometimes they, uh, sometimes some of the message is if it make, well, look, I, as an example, when I had that experience that, you know, Will said that is a near death experience. You just didn't have to die to experience it. <laughs> um, it, I sat up on the table and I said to the woman that, um, that was sort of facilitating the, time that I, you know, I was with her to meditate and so on. So I looked at her and I said, well, one part of my brain is saying that I'm mentally ill and you're psychotic. And the other part of my brain is saying, um, this is, this was phenomenal. And she said, well, which one makes you feel better to think about? And I said, well, the one that says this was awesome. And she goes, well, then go with that. yeah i mean i kind of yeah 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 i mean and that's the thing is that even if even if you have a belief like i do that you're not in control of anything you still function psychologically if you're psychologically sort of basically normal you're gonna have the experience of having a choice and functioning that that way and of course i do as well um you know i I sort of want to make good choices and i want to don't want to make bad choices and all those things are true um, but it's just kind of relaxing to know that that's probably bogus. Right. Yeah. All the times that I uh, would sit with, um, let's say one of my parents who are, who were very much not entrepreneurs, did not have the entrepreneur gene and, you know, 20 years into my being an entrepreneur still saying, so when are you going to get a real job? <laughs> and me going, you know, well, my parents do that all the time. Yeah. Like, you know, there's no safety with your quote unquote real job either. Right. Like you, you, it's the same, the company could go under the, like you understand that, right? No, that is not correct. Why is that not correct? So kind of fascinating to challenge those things. At some point, someone that's really invested in that is going to just, you know, say, Oh, you're ridiculous. You're immature. Your fans, your flights of fancy or, irresponsible and you know write you off 
Oh, that's happened many times for me. And um, it's quite valuable for me because it tells me I'm on the right track. The more people who say like you're wrong and the more I'm like, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> I good, like good. that. I like that. It's <laughs> this week, like this period of time in my life has been inordinately stressful. Um, and, you know, those things happen. And uh, I decided to drive several hours from my house to be with this woman who I now call a signal booster. She doesn't like really being called a healer because she's like, I don't heal you. I just facilitate your own ability to heal yourself. Um, but we don't know what to call that. Oh, so, cool. so now we call her a signal booster. <laughs> and uh, I like it. I like that. Yeah, me too. So I'm like, you know, I, this has been a rough time. I don't, the, obviously I've needed to grow in, in many ways. Uh, this is why I'm, uh, you know, coming up against this, uh, about the stuff that's going on, something for me to learn. So I'm taking three days off in the busiest time I've ever had to meditate, be with this signal booster, uh, starting tomorrow. And, um, and, older or older, a younger version of me would have said, that's totally irresponsible. You're so busy. How could you do that? That's crazy. And the me that is now is like, oh my gosh, of course I need to take this time because then I'll be able to better um, handle all this stuff that's going on. And I'll look at it differently. There will be so many shifts in my perception and observations and whatever that I have to do this. So it's kind of, it's kind of cool. That's the cool part about getting older. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That you could just sort of look at things you, you, instead of relying on sort of your experience of the way things have been to predict the future, you could instead intuitively, you know, form the next step based on all sorts of factors and many of which you don't understand. That's why cool. travel is so awesome. Yeah. I always think when I go on a trip, like I'm going to Greece pretty soon and I've never been. And I, I think oh, I can't wait to <laughs> see out of my own eyes at different points along the trip. And when I get home, yeah. I can't wait to see what I'm going to see and to feel what I'm going to feel. I have no idea what it's going to be. Um, I'm not saying it's going to be perfect or, well, it will be perfect, but I'm not saying it's all going to be happy and joyous and whatever. I just, I'm excited about what it's going to be. Uh, yeah, exactly. It is what it is, but it's exciting to find out what it is. Exactly. And to yeah. open your, nothing like travel to foreign places, uh, foreign to you anyway, to open your mind to, you know, there is so much more out there. <laughs> little pocket that we put ourselves in. Yeah, traveling in space. I also really enjoy traveling in time. Mm. So I think that that's a really valuable, um, something that's a lot cheaper than traveling in space. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and how, I mean, you do have a book that you wrote uh, called Transcendent, or your co-author of Transcendent Mind, Rethinking the Science of Consciousness. So when you say the statement you just said, it makes me think, okay, you're talking about... Um, We'll tell our listeners what you're what you're talking about. Oh yeah, so there's that book, and I'm also co-author of the book called Premonition Code, which is about practical and the scientific background of precognition and practical ways to practice precognition. What I'm talking about is there's plenty of scientific evidence, um, at least that I believe, based on not just my own data, but based on a statistical analysis of other people's data, that um, 
you can get information about future events and uh and i've been uh training people how to do that i've i've been training at an unnamed silicon valley uh company i've been training executives about how to do that but also i've been training people online um and uh it's fair, like people can learn <laughs> it's not that, i mean some people are, already have the ability but even those people are often attracted to learning how to sit down instead of in the in their dreams or in flashes of insights how to sit down at a table and um and at a certain time and actually get the information you know about something that they are they plan to get the information about or something someone else wants information about um so that's called controlled precognition or that's what i call it and i teach it it's a subset of remote viewing and i teach it um through my book and then through classes and i really love it i teach with my co-teacher john vivanco and it's delightful i mean we have students everywhere from doctors engineers lawyers you know all the professions scientists to people who are um outside of the, the sort of more traditional professions but it's super interested in traveling in time mentally so, I mean, once you sort of acknowledge that the human version of linear time isn't the only thing that's out there, the question always arises, well, how do you get access to the other events that are right. in the whole, you know, and that's what this is. So, yeah, that's, um, I think about that a lot and I love it. And, it, and, and why I love it is like it's a spiritual practice in a way mm-hmm. in that the more you do it, my experience is for me. The more I do it, the, uh, the more I have this experience of a connection between my past and future selves. Mm-hmm. That's a real connection, just like you would have between two friends in the present moment. You know, mm-hmm. it's another, it's like having another friend, except it's you in time. So you feel stronger because you're not just this person that's existing right now at this very moment and you don't just have memories of the past and you don't don't just anticipate the future those parts of you are real and they're with you too and you can exchange information and encouragement and warmth and love and support and so to me it's like um god i couldn't do without it i mean yeah it's like such a strengthening powerful talk about power but it's this kind of power that's not about fear or control it's this power of just being so immersed in the nature of who I am and, and what I'm here to do. It's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very much so. It's, um, some of, of this makes me think of, or what this has done for me, especially working with this one particular signal booster is (laughs) that, uh, even though I've, I don't really like the word mistake anymore. I really say, well, that was a choice and that could feel like a misstep because it definitely caused some pain, but nothing um, was a mistake. Like, yeah, of course not. Everything happened exactly. So in, a, in another way you were talking about, you know, it makes you relax, the, the idea that we don't have control. It makes me really relax. Oh, okay. I can relax because every, even the moment just a minute ago um, yeah. was, suppo- was supposed to happen to get me to this point um so i can just kind of relax it's not a free pass on deplorable behavior but it's a a, that was supposed to happen yeah well it's not like you could have chosen otherwise right so the mistake suggests that there's like this one path but you chose some other path and the other path that you didn't choose was better but like obviously not right Mm. yeah i love all this stuff say i can swim in all this stuff even not being a scientist myself (laughs) 
Well, yeah, but that's the point of science is what we're scientists are supposed to swim in all this stuff, just like everyone else, swim in the mystery and then try to test some ideas to see how, how those tests tell us anything, if those tests or how those tests tell us anything about the mystery. But I mean, science is essentially not supposed to be such a separate field. It's supposed to be human beings wondering at the mystery. You know, I know that's what I love about. It. I always would say, well, I don't, I don't see why they um, separated science and art in terms yeah. of different fields. It, it is art. It's, it's the same art thing. as science. It's different I mean, methods. Yeah, exactly. absolutely, exactly. Yeah. And just because someone's a scientist does not mean that they are check the box people in every aspect of their life. They're just, that's just, you know, they're some of the most creative, amazing people that are steeped in the mystery of things. And I know some artists, quote unquote, who are the biggest check the boxers I've ever met. (laughs) Yeah, right. You cannot predict uh, from someone's logical or analytical capacity. You cannot predict their creative capacity. They're completely unrelated. So you have all four boxes of that set of quadrant, you know, that Mm -hmm. quadrant map filled out with people. So, yeah. And just because someone... Uh, you know, does something that would be under the heading of what we understand as science doesn't mean that they're deficient because they don't also paint. They right. are an artist. Uh, you know, I can go on. Yeah, they are doing Sorry. art. Exactly. Yeah. Where does knowledge come from? It's coming from one source and it's yep. not us. That's where I get into people who try to own something. Um, you know, I am the the pioneer of this or I am the creator of that I always look at them and go man just give it up already I mean where you do not own consciousness yeah it just comes it's going to come through who is ever most convenient so the most of the argument you could say is like a bunch of toasters sitting around and one of the toasters says well I was the first to be plugged in and all the other toasters are like yeah whatever (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> exactly exactly yeah I just look at things like that and I go that is all about your ego that has nothing to do with it you yeah. need to be special and unique and if you gosh if you would just let that go it's so freeing and it's not easy to let go no it's not like I always let it go and Me either very difficult but you know it's interesting uh, coming back to linear time that first thing I think that might be part of I think you're you're teaching me something here, which is I think that might be part of why when I talk about this linear time is not the sort of way of nature um, thing to audiences. There's a lot of resistance, especially from men. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if it's because like part of the claim to ego or identity, especially in a man whose realm is, you know, societally is supposed to be the external realm. Right. Um, I wonder if part of the claim is I was the first at this, or I was the first when you get rid of linear time, it doesn't matter. If yes. That's, I, I think you're onto something because I have seen, I certainly have been around women who have behaved this way, but hands down to so much of a larger degree. Yeah. Um, it's been with men who just um, absolutely hang on to that. And, you know, there's t- t- so many studies and so on about the death of the ego and ego death is painful, especially for someone who's extremely narcissistic. But, yeah. but yeah, I think there's something to that. It's, it tears at the very fabric of, of what they've clung to in order to yeah. feel good about themselves, which is something that's very uh, set up based on external 
Yeah, but it has to be. I mean, I I have compassion for that situation. Mm -hmm. That's what we've done to men. I mean, we have done that to men. We have these expectations as a culture that say, look, you're not successful if you're a man, if you only have the internal stuff. It has to have the external piece. So it's, I kind of feel like it's our fault. Well, I don't think it's totally I mean, fault our fault. Right word. <laughs> yeah. I think it's it's uh, it's definitely contributed to it, but um, there's still that personal responsibility. And I feel for the people that are on the receiving end of these kind of people because it ain't fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. anyway, um, this is fascinating. Tell. But just to be clear, by our fault, I meant like the entire society. I didn't oh, mean like yeah. women. I meant yes. like everyone, including the men. I think it's what we've built. Absolutely. And we've boxed women in that way too. And about things. Um, Well, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. Sure. Okay. Here's the three basic ways to, to sort of check in on my work. So see what resonates with you. One is mossbridgeinstitute.com. So that's my consulting company. And that usually has links to whatever I'm doing. So my last name, mossbridge, M-O-S-S, bridge, institute.com. Then there's the premonitioncode.com, which is where you can get free um, training practicing on uh, precognition, and you can also learn about classes in that area. And then there's the callingprogram.com, which is my new book, The Calling, and it's a 12-week science-based procedure for defining, energizing, and, and bringing out into the world your life's work. So those are the three places, the callingprogram.com, mossbridgeinstitute.com, and the premonitioncode.com. And focus at will also. Well, yeah, but focus at will is, um, I'm all over that because of the blogs. I did a whole bunch of series of blogs, and then I also have a white paper there on, the, on how focus at will works. Yeah. Yep. I listen to the music too, especially for um, ADHD. Oh, it's really, it's just excellent. It seems to work. I still, even after a series of experiments, can't tell if it's placebo or not, but I don't think it matters. Like the point is it works. Well, though, I look at it like that too. Like look at so many things now. It makes me feel good. Yeah. yeah like I, Exactly. I don't care if it's... But at least, at least I'm convinced that it works. Like mm-hmm. that besides with, you know, not just on me. So, yeah. I, yeah, I actually bought better speakers in order to play it because um, I'm trying to be less and less on my phone. So... Um, mm. Nice. When I'm when I'm working, I put it on my computer speakers, and um, it really does help me focus. And I, I don't know. It's I did a week of brain training um, with a brain training center, and it was really awesome. And of course, there was the piece of me that was like, well, yeah, if I spent every day doing exercises just specific to my brain, of course, my brain is going to respond and and. Uh, you know, perform better. And I don't do those exercises every day. So there was, you know, that argument, quote unquote argument. And then there was, this is freaking amazing. Like my recall <laughs> after the week was like, wow. Yeah. So I look at that with the music. It is doing things um, to help me stay more focused and um, uh, just for the fact that the way that it's been set up and designed to play, I can tell from those brain training sessions that it's using different areas of my brain. Well, all I know is that um, the biggest result we got in, in our first round of experiments that I was really impressed by, we got some other results, but the one that I was most impressed by is people's creativity 
as measured on a standard creativity test by independent judges, so they didn't even know about what the experiment was, was increased between the sort of plain music, whatever music they wanted to listen to that wasn't focus at will, and focus at will music. And that was a profoundly uh, decent effect. Like, I was very convinced by that. So um, not only do I have the personal experience that when I'm like, if I'm writing a book or something and I'm procrastinating a chapter, I'll turn on focus at will. Not only do I have the personal experience that that actually helps, my experience of looking at the data and analyzing them <laughs> is that it's very clear it's helping people be more creative, which is awesome because there's few things that can do that. Hmm. Yeah, very true. Very true. Oh, well, Dr. Juliet Mossbridge, thank you so much for coming on the show. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I love what I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's awesome. You're bringing all these cool ideas to the world. It's, it's also just really great to talk with someone who's just basically interested in everything. <laughs> yes, curiosity is uh, plays a huge role in my life, for sure. <laughs> cool. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Mental Health News Radio. I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all we promised, we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.